Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to another episode of the Fail Critics Podcast. I'm Matt Lamborne, filling in for Steve Norman, who's decided to actually have a bit of a life, as opposed to the uh, the rest of us this week. Uh, I'm joined by the ever-present Owen Hughes. Hello. And the ever-high-flying Andrew Brooker. Hello. How are you doing, guys? All right. Not too bad. How are you? Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we talked all about that off there, so I'm not going to go into <laughs> it on the pod, but... Yeah, it's been a bit of a bad afternoon, so looking yeah. forward to getting a little bit film geeky with you guys for a change. Excellent. So this week we're going to be jumping into some news. Um, we've got our usual what we've been watching segments as well as a, a heavy-handed triple bill, whereby we'll be discussing our three favourite hand-to-hand combat scenes in honour of our resident host Steve getting twatted in the face in the name of uh, charity and goodwill. But more on that a little bit later. So, first off, Owen, what's new in the news this week? Well, I mean, we've had some a couple of things that that have caught my attention this week. One, well, the first one was the new poster has been revealed. The first poster, I should say, rather than new, um, for the the, the next uh, James Bond film, Spectre, and it just looks really shit. This <laughs> is my opinion. It I mean, have you both, garbage. Have you, it just looks terrible, doesn't it? There's nothing exciting about it. It's just Daniel Craig staring at the camera, pulling a sort of male model pose, wearing a grey jumper. It just looks really boring and dull. Like, clearly, the only thing that's happened there is the dude's gone, Dan, we need a poster. Get over here and do your best Vladimir Putin expression <laughs> while I take a pic. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah, all that's it is. That's bloody was, awful poster. I was uh, thoroughly unimpressed when I saw... The poster launch on Twitter, and considering it's supposed to be a quote-unquote teaser poster, it's just Daniel Craig, which could be any film, anywhere, and just Spectre in some fancy font. It's, yeah, it's teasing the gap. That's all it's teasing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, but, I'm not, I'm not overly concerned about it because at the end of the day, it is just a poster, you know. Um, so there's, there's not too much point in getting upset about it, but. I suppose it does lead into a conversation about whether we're actually interested in the next Bond film at all. Do we feel any hype for it? Are we looking forward to it? Or uh, uh, Actually, I suppose a good question is, did you enjoy the previous Daniel Craig films, and do you think you'll enjoy the next one? I think I, I enjoyed Casino Royale the second time I watched it. 
the first time I watched it, I didn't like it that much at all. I thought it was a bit pants. Uh, thought it was trying too hard. That and the, the one afterwards as well. Question of sport. Uh, Quantum yeah. yeah. It was trying too hard to be born, and I didn't like it. I actually really like Casino Royale. Um, just because I like the fact that it wasn't so smooth as, say, um, Pierce Brosnan's interpretation of Bond in regards to at least at the beginning, Daniel Craig starts off as quite a sloppy killer in terms of his um, hand-to-hand combat with bad guys where you have that scene where they're tumbling down the stairs trying to choke each other out. And it's very brutal. It's not a, a slick, almost martial arty type way of disposing of a bad guy. And there's almost a, a sense that Bond could be overpowered in that scene. And I like that. You know, it was rough around the edges and then as the poker aspect, which was very cheesy, but at the same time, very well done. It was the right kind of shady glamour about it. So I enjoyed that. I haven't actually seen Quantum of Solace, I must admit. Uh, for some reason, just wasn't drawn into that one. But so I there's did. no poker in it, so... There's no poker in it, yeah. Yeah, um, I know your audience, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and Skyfall was, was fine. It wasn't brilliant, but, but I enjoyed that. So See, I kind in, of enjoyed Skyfall because it felt more like an actual... Bond film. Yes, me too. Mm-hmm. Exactly that. Yeah, the only thing that got me with Skyfall, and I think I said this on the pod at the time, is that I don't really understand the relevance of the title in regards to the plot of the film. And that, that bothered me for some reason. I was <laughs> expecting it to have some sort of um, significant meaning in regards to the overall aspect, but it just turns out to be a farm at the end. It, isn't it like the farm where he was from or something like that? I can't remember. Yeah, he was sort of raised there or whatever, but I thought it was going to be like some sort of golden eye, like satellite weapon or something cool. Oh, yeah. Or the sky falling. Something like the sky fall. That would have been there. And then you have that that scene where he's being uh, assessed uh, Mm. and the the guy's asking him questions about his um, mental capacity and and whatever to to go back into the field and then he mentions Skyfall and it says it's done. Yeah. And then you find at the end, it's just where he grew up. I don't really get that. So that that perturbed me about Skyfall, but that's a, a minor complaint. So in general speaking, I'm open to the possibility that the new Bond is going to be good, um, but everything that they've done thus far to promote it's been very poor, I think, with the unveiling of the cast wasn't terribly exciting, even though I love Monica Bellucci, but that's a, a story for another podcast, I think. Um and then this post, the malarkey, was just very bleh. Who gives a shit? Yeah. I was expecting a bit more fanfare for it as well, to be honest. It was just something I happened to stumble across when looking through Twitter on whatever day it was that last week that, that I sort of found it. And um, mostly comments were negative, which is a bit of a shame. I mean, uh, I'm not a huge fan of the older Bond films. You know, I've seen some. I quite like the campy nature of, of some of them and, and stuff like that. And everyone likes um, Goldeneye, of course. Uh, but, you know, it's just that it should have been a bigger deal than it was. Uh, but, you know, never mind. We, we, we'll we get over it, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess any news is good news, and any excuse to keep us talking about it is good as far <laughs> as publicising yeah. the film goes. So what other news do we have this week? Well, this is either good news or bad news, depending on how you uh, want to look at it. 
So we all know films like Ghostbusters are getting new sequels um, soon with an all-female cast. We know films like Anchorman have had sequels recently. Zoolander is getting another sequel with um, Ben Stiller and uh, Owen Wilson turning up at the Paris fashion show the other, the other week as well to promote that. But but we are close, apparently. We're uh, A direct quote here, we're really close says Alex Winter to Bill and Ted 3. Wow. Yeah, which seems like... I mean, I like Bill and Ted. I grew up with Bill and Ted films, and I, I kind of like them, and watching them even now, I still think they, they hold up quite well. But are we... Do we need a third one? Do, uh, yeah, do we need a third one? Surely... I mean, Alex Winter's career hasn't really taken off like we might have hoped, but Keanu Reeves, surely he's too big now for a film like this. It would just feel a bit weird. But surely it'd feel weird anyway. I mean, they're not teenagers. Like Keanu Reeves is like 50 years old. How do you have Bill well, and yeah. Ted with a 50-year-old? Precisely. And, you know, Keanu Reeves knows his career is all about... Um, well, he wants to get into, like, directing films. He's made a couple of... Uh, uh, action films. Man of Tai Chi was actually pretty good, and I want to see him more go down, you know, go down that avenue, not harking back to comedies from twenty years ago, you know. So I don't know. He's doing the because uh, they're turning John Wick into a franchise now, aren't they? Exactly. Yeah. But he's going to be a bit busy to be making, you know, Bill and Ted Free. Maybe they could go all female cast for that. <laughs> <laughs> Belinda and Thelma. Yeah, right. <laughs> what, would they just perv over uh, Thelma's dad? That would be a bit weird then. Yeah, that's, yeah. That wouldn't work quite so well. That wouldn't be quite so funny for some reason. But um, but I suppose it, it just seems to follow a trend, doesn't it? That, you know, it's, it comes up every so often, and I'm not so sure that the conversation about the good old days is ever that true. But it, it does seem to be... yourself, though, doesn't it? Yeah, but it does seem it seems like there is a trend to bring back comedies and you know riding a kind of nostalgia wave as well to to bring these films back. When I don't know what the demand for them really is. It's one of those where people think they want to build and Ted three because it would be kind of cool because it wasn't the, weren't the other two good, but. Do they really want a Bill and Ted three? I mean, do you guys want a Bill and Ted three? I could live without it. No, to be perfectly honest. No, I'm I'm not fussed. I like the first two, but yeah. as far, if I remember rightly, the second film came quite a long time after the first one, mm. and then this is even ridiculously further away. Like you say, both the leads have aged so much since the last mm. the last film. It's, and the guy that plays Rufus is dead. Yeah. yeah. Can yeah. we even believe that they are Bill and Ted for, for circa 90 minutes? I don't think we can. They're the, the two completely different people to where we left them at the end of the second movie. So, Yeah. I just don't think it would work anymore. But, you know, I'm the same with, like, I like Zoolander. I know that it's a, just a silly Ben Stiller, Will Ferrell sort of comedy, but it's one of those, I'm not ashamed to admit, I can watch that and still find it really funny now. I must have seen it about five, six, seven times, and every time there are points where I just can't stop myself laughing in it. But even that getting a sequel, I'm not too excited about that. The new Dumb and Dumber I didn't go to see, and from what I read was shocking. So, yeah, I don't know. I can't I can't get myself excited for this either, but I thought it was worth mentioning because, it, like I said, just seem to be a, a trend that's developing. 
Is there anything that you you guys can remember watching when you were younger that you were just hoping they avoid and don't make sequels of? Transformers. No more Transformers films. <laughs> Too late on that one. Please, dear Lord, no more Transformers films. Yeah. yeah. There's one that I would have liked them to have made back in the day that they never got around to doing properly, uh, which I now hope that they won't do because it's just too far gone, and that is Spaceballs 2, The Search for More Money. <laughs> Very good. Which was always promised but, but never arrived. Yeah. So, uh, given that they've waited this long, it's probably not going to happen now. But, mm. uh, and hopefully it won't. Yeah. Just going back to that point about Transformers, though, I remember, do you guys remember that Honda advert that came out like about a year or two before Transformers did, where they turned a car into a robot and it started dancing? Yes. Yeah. I saw that and I thought, they have got to make a Transformers film now. I thought, that's it. They, we're going to get a proper Transformers movie. Um... You know, you know the phrase, you know, be careful what you wish for. I think yes. that brings to mind. Oh, God. Fair that's... enough. Okay, so that wraps up our news, and we'll be back in our next segment with uh, what we've been watching. Okay, so now on to our what we've been watching this last week or so. Um, there's a little bit of a shortage of quality new films on at the cinema this week. So Andrew's going to tell us about one that he's happened to watch in the last few days, and that is the new Jason Statham movie, Wildcard. Take it away, Andrew. Okay, so Wildcard is a pretty typical Jason Statham flick. He plays a, a bodyguard in Las Vegas who... He takes on a client who wants to be shown Las Vegas, but obviously with the protection of Jason Statham, I don't think it's even worth naming his character anymore. He's just <laughs> Statham, isn't he? He yeah. just plays himself. He just time. plays himself. Uh, and he kind of, he takes a a woman played by Sofia Vergara under his wing, who after she gets her, I think they're supposed to be friends, she gets hurt and you know, sexually assaulted by a mobster's son, played by, and I can never pronounce his surname right, it's Milo Ventimiglia, the dude from Heroes. Yeah, sounds about right. And he's just the dude from Heroes. <laughs> Seriously, the guy should never play anything, he should never play a bad guy, ever. He can't pull it off. He looks like a complete fucking twat. <laughs> he's, he's awful in this film. Anyway, so it turns out that... The problem is I don't I can't really describe this film without giving away every single plot point because nothing actually happens. Mm. It's ninety minutes of Statham talking gruff. It's forty minutes before the first fight, I'm pretty sure. Uh and there's only a couple of fights. It's not really that good. There's one scene with Vergara and Milo where she threatens to castrate him and this kind of sets off because she's emasculated him in front of his bodyguards, so he kills his bodyguards and blames Statham and tries to have Statham killed. I see. Follows a very logical path from the thing. And nothing really comes from that either. Yeah. It really, it's, I swear to you, it's 90 minutes of absolutely nothing. I, I don't, even watching most films, even the most boring films, I'm happy to sit to the end. I came very close to just 
not watching anymore about halfway through. I was mm-hmm. so bored. You know, I can watch. And the worst bit about it for me is it's directed by Simon West. Oh, really? Who makes pretty okay action films. He does. You know, he, he made The Mechanic with Jason Statham, which I thought was great. You know, he, Con Air as well, of course. He made, he made Con Air and Tomb Raider and, you know, Expendables 2. Maybe I should have left that one alone. <laughs> I like Expendables 2. But, you know, he, I do, he, but, yeah. he makes okay action films, and this is just nothing. At the, it's worth watching just for the final fight scene, which is quite brutal and worth, you know, a, a decent fight scene. But outside of that, I would not bother watching it. Not at all. It's Jason Statham phoned in everything. It's absolutely terrible. And there's these, like, these names like Anne Heesh is in it and does absolutely nothing. Mm. You know, there's a sideline of him having a gambling problem that takes the most... I don't know. I, it's just... Every gambling film has this same thing. It's just so cliched. I literally, I saw this scene starting and went, I'm going to go make, you know, go <laughs> take a leak, get something to eat, because I'll come back in 10 minutes and I know how it's ended. I don't need to watch this. Mm. And it's all, you know, it's all based in Las Vegas and it's set in this casino. And and the weird bit about it, actually, this gambling scene, you look at it and he's playing cards and it, the the scene, the way the scene's filmed and the music that's playing, it felt really like a cheap rip-off of the card-playing scenes from Lockstock, which was really bizarre to watch. Oh, I hate that. Fucking card stand-up scene. I can't even make talking about this film interesting. It's so boring. Presumably you saw it because you're a fan of Jason Statham normally. I love Jason Statham. I could watch that dude in absolutely anything. Now I can say I've watched him in absolutely anything. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so where where would you rank it along Statham's uh, line of films? Uh, I mean, down down with Revolver. That bad? Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. <laughs> does he at least wear a wig in this? No. Uh, no, he does tear off another dude's wig and make jokes about <laughs> feeding it. He doesn't put it on. No, he doesn't. No, what's the point? <laughs> It's it's such a everything about it's a disappointment. I was expecting it to, you know, I, I know what I'm watching when I go see a Statham film. You know, I'm not coming, I'm not going and expecting Oscars or awards of any sort. But I'm, I wasn't expecting that. I was so bored. Just don't bother. Well, that's very unfortunate. This Mr. Statham has well and truly taken the jam out of your donut on that one. He really has. The problem, <laughs> I'm, the Mechanic Two comes out later this year. I'll wait for that. See, I wasn't that taken with the Mechanic film. I wanted to like it, because it's a remake of um, Bronson Charles film. Bronson, yeah? Yeah. So I kind of, I really wanted to like the Mechanic, and I just found that really boring, I'm afraid. I'm just hoping he lives up to uh, Reputation and Furious 7, because that's either going to be fucking amazing, or absolutely dog shit terrible. So. Well, Van Diesel, The Rock... Uh, stay firm, putting them all in a film. It, it's someone's I mean, I'm no fan hurt. of. Pardon? Someone's got to get hurt. With Someone's got to get hurt. Yeah. yeah, I'm no fan of the, the Fast and Furious films, um, which is odd. I do like dumb action films, and that's all they are really. But 
Yeah, I mean... The, um, the Fast and Furious films, it's kind of the same reason you go and watch Statham films. Because they're stupid fun and you can switch off for a bit and watch them. Yeah. And I quite... I think it's the amount of times they use the phrase family, oh, which yeah. does my head in with the Fast and Furious films. Oh yeah, me and all. Especially, especially considering not one of them looks alike. <laughs> <laughs> The, the thing with Wildcard, right, I reckon the, I'm pretty sure the only reason this film has gotten a theatrical release now is because Statham is turning up in trailers for Fast and Furious 7. That's yeah, the only, seems, that's the only way it's going to make money. It's, oh, more Statham, yes please, because no, it's fucking awful. Okay. Is it a British film? Is it, um, no. Or is it actually an American one? I'm pretty sure it's an American one. Set in yeah. Vegas. Yeah. Oh, that's a shame. If it had oh. been British, I could have let it off a little bit because I don't expect mm. much from mainstream British movies. But he makes... I mean, some of the British films he's done, you know, excusing stuff like Snatch and, and Lockstock, I mean, the more action films. The um, Hummingbird that he was in the other year. Yeah. I really enjoyed that, and that was him trying something slightly different. Absolutely, uh, and even, like, because after he'd done Hummingbird, he'd done... Uh, Homefront, didn't he, with James Franco? Yeah, yeah, and, and that was also quite decent. Homefront, I adored it. I thought it was great because it was a little darker and a little slower pace than what he usually does, a bit like Hummingbird was, and I mm. really, really liked it. This kind of seemed like it went for the slower pace, just took away all the decent writing. Just missed it completely, yeah. missed the mark. That's a genuine, yeah. I mean, not obviously not every film can be great and not every film can be watchable, but I expected more, I think, from Jason Statham. Not much more, but a bit more. I wouldn't bother with it. Okay, folks, you heard it here first. Don't bother with that one. Save yourself for Furious 7. Um, I'm going to talk about, very briefly, a film that I've been wanting to talk about on the podcast for quite a while. It's one from my youth that has stayed with me, perhaps undeservedly so. Um, we recently... I'm really looking forward to this one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you are. Now, I'm actually looking forward to talking about it because... It's one of those ones where I can't rationally explain why I like it, but I just do. Um, so I reinvestigated this film. It's called Eve of Destruction, following our recent podcast about artificial intelligence. And this was one that instantly came to mind as a candidate to talk about during that pod, but I didn't have it to hand to rewatch it. It had been some years since I've last seen it, but I've managed to acquire it again via eBay. And it's surprisingly rare on DVD. It cost me the best part of 10 quid second hand, which you know, is a travesty to have to pay for a second hand optical media disc, but there you go. So the film's from 1991. And before I get into how much I actually like it in a silly kind of way, I'm just going to forewarn you all that it's currently rated at 4.8 on IMDb. Uh, just to give you an idea of the, the ground that we're venturing into here. So the film stars Gregory Hines and Rennie Soutendish. Now, for those who aren't familiar with uh, the latter in particular, she's an actress who's known to me through a couple of Paul Verhoeven's classic Dutch films, uh, Spetters and The Fourth Man, two films that I've spoken about previously on the podcast a while ago. And she tends to have a habit of playing seductresses in a lot of her films, particularly in, in those two that we've just mentioned. And she does it very well. Um, she also played Ava Braun in a TV movie called Inside the Third Reich way back in the 80s. So she's got a little bit of um, decent background to her before she got into this film, which was her first major Hollywood role. And 
Gregory Hines, of course, had a decent career in the 80s, but it's certainly been winding down by the time this film came out. So this was perhaps one of his last attempts at a decent Hollywood flick. So just to give you some background on the film, Gregory Hines is a U.S. Armed Forces top counterinsurgency expert. He's explicitly referred to as a terrorist hunter in the film, and he's pulled away at short notice from a special forces training camp when it's made known that a military-grade artificial intelligence robot has gone haywire after being damaged on a test run during a bank robbery. Um, The artificial intelligence itself is based on its own creator, Dr. Eve Simmons, hence the name Eve of Destruction. Very clever marketing. (laughs) Uh, And she's designed on its creator in both in terms of looks and in memory. And after being damaged during this bank heist, Eve, the robot, begins to access her creator's most extreme memories, such as her sexual fantasies and her desires to seek revenge against her abusive father uh, and begins to act them out in real life. Um, so you know, the, the AI is quite volatile, to say the least. Um, what is not revealed until much later into the movie is that not only is Eve weaponized, she's also a walking nuclear bomb. Uh, programmed to destroy itself whenever she's faced with insurmountable danger. So uh, a sort of plan B broken arrow, if you will. Um, so you're not only dealing with the Terminator, but it can also nuke itself at any given moment, which is always nice. Um, the movie goes through the motions of a particularly funny John Wayne Bobbitt scene, whereby Eve, the machine, acting out on one of its sexual fantasies, goes to a bar and attempts to pick up a, a local moron uh, to have sex with, uh, pretending to be a hooker. That when she proceeds to uh, get him to a room, she's, uh, the, the local moron begins to call her a bitch in a sort of very chauvinistic fashion, and the AI gets offended because it's trying to behave like a human and demasculizes uh, said assailant by biting his dick off during a during a during <laughs> a blow, Didn't blow see that yeah so it's 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 quite humorous in that respect that it's gone for perhaps every man's worst fear in, in that regard so that's a bit that will make you squirm if not make you laugh quite a lot um but yeah is it played for laughs or is it it's like... it's both i think it's supposed to be slightly more horrific than it is for last but the fact that you know it's a robot and it's getting offended by being called a bitch repeatedly. It, that's the bit that makes you laugh because yeah. that just wouldn't happen. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> so it, it's supposed to make you uncomfortable. You'll, you'll end up laughing at it. So it's a little bit of both. Um, the film eventually ends with a really cool subway scene in which the, the AI Eve is being uh, shot and then stabbed in the eye. Uh, by Gregory Hines, which is its only weak spot. Um, there's a, a few continuity areas throughout the film that you'll notice. At some point during the beginning of the film, um, one of the characters explains that Eve has managed to pick up uh, an Uzi with a, a certain amount of rounds, I think something like 100 rounds or something from a, a local arms store. And there's no way that she only expends 100 rounds throughout the whole movie. It's it's almost like unlimited ammunition, like some bad video game. And not only that, you never see a reload ever. 
So she's just spraying things constantly and never seen to be reloading at any point whatsoever. So it's just really sort of poorly edited in that respect. And even the most sort of casual nitpicker will, will definitely pick up on that. It's just like a constant spray in, in certain scenes. So it's like um, every machine gun in every early 90s movie ever. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I guess you could say. I mean, this is, certainly isn't made to try and be an A-grade movie, so it's not hiding any uh, fact that it, it's taken the piss a little bit in regards to the continuity with ammo conservation or its lack thereof. Um, Do you think that's um, a contributing factor to the to the reason it's got such a low rating? Or, or not like IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes or whatever? Or do you think it's genuinely just not a very good film that you got a lot of nostalgia for? It's not It's not a, necessarily a nostalgia thing. I mean, I saw this on Sky Movies when I was very, very young. And I don't know why it stuck with me. I just thought the title was cool, I think, mm. because I don't particularly remember enjoying it at the time. Um, it's just one of those ones that you happen to catch that nobody you know has. Mm. So it's kind of exclusive to you. So when it, it sort of reemerged for me when we were discussing the AI thing, I had to sort of seek it out again because I've never seen it in a shop and I've never seen it on TV again since. So I was actually surprised it was even on DVD in the first place. So I had to pick it up again. And I think more in my old age, I've sort of learned to forgive films for their shortcomings and just take them on face value. And there's Mm -hmm. editing that's bad. The acting isn't great. Um, The AI version of Eve does a good job at being a sort of semi-seductress in the movie, whereas her her real character, Dr. E. Simmons, is very plain and boring. But for all its shortcomings, I still found it fun. It's just, it's almost akin to something like, although not deliberately as tongue-in-cheek as something like Sharknado, we like them because they're so bad. And this has so many shortcomings that it can't be taken terribly seriously. But it is a very budget Terminator with a female lead. I probably expect... I would enjoy this a lot more than, say, Terminator 3, which I haven't seen and never will go out of my way to see because I just know it will be so bad. At least this isn't trying to be good and then ending up bad. It's pretty bad, but you can laugh at it and take you know some light enjoyment out of it in a non-serious way. Um, but just to, to sort of cap things off, the film had a fairly hefty budget of $13 million, but only took $5.5 million at the box office worldwide. So it pretty much nailed the career of Gregory Hines at that point as it was sort of winding down anyway. And René Soutendick didn't really appear in anything in the West thereafter. Her career has revived perhaps in the last 10 years back in Holland. Um, But also in relation to the producer of the film, Duncan Gibbons, he hasn't done anything since then. He's done a few music videos before doing Eve of Destruction, but he's done literally nothing since. So Hollywood has completely shunned him after this one. And I think it might have had the potential to be something a little bit better than it turned out to be. And perhaps Western audiences didn't warm to Renee Southend because she is very European, even though she's trying to play an Americanized character in this. Um, but I like her based on what she's done prior to this film. So her lack of presence in this one didn't bother me so much. But it's one- I mean, when you, when you first started talking about it on the AI pod, uh, the podcast. I can't remember when we did that. And it was in January or yeah. whenever it was. This a couple months ago, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I assumed when you were talking about it, it would be a 
some like something uh, more like um, Lawnmower Man, you know, where it ha- it was relatively high budget, not like thirteen million dollars high budget, which is quite a lot for the for the time, but you know, something like five six million dollars had maybe one or two well known people in it, um, and took itself very seriously. But from what you've just said, it sounds more like an Albert Pion film, you know, guy who did Cyborg with Van Damme in it, or uh, he did Nemesis, and all those kinds of sci-fi films from the 90s. But th- that's a huge budget. That's That's shocked me, actually. Yeah, it's a pretty big budget for, for early 90s, and it doesn't have a heavyweight cast around it. Gregory Hines would be fairly well known for people who you know, went to the cinema a lot in the 80s. Mm. But for the West, particularly pre-internet, no one would have really known about Rennie Southenditch whatsoever. So she was a risk putting her in, and it's fair to say it didn't pay off. Um, but I've just looked up the director as well, Duncan Gibbons, mm-hmm. uh, on IMDb. He says he died in a massive wildfire in Southern California oh, in right. 1993. Oh, there you go. And so <laughs> it wasn't this that finished him off. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't this, no. Uh, so this is why we Unless it was that. suicide and he started the fire, but you never know. Or Eve killed him. Or Eve killed him, yeah. It was uh, way. prophetic. Yeah. But this is this is one whereby you shouldn't pay a lot of money to see it. I obviously had a history with it, so I was happy to pay a little bit of a premium to get hold of it. But if it does ever end up on something like Netflix, or if you know someone who's got it who's willing to borrow it to you, I would I would check it out for a little bit of fun. But it is one of those ones whereby you have to be prepared to laugh at every, every little bit of the shortcoming in the film to perhaps get a little bit of shameful enjoyment out of it. But it's an interesting concept, and, and it's a film I quite enjoy. So, yeah, it's uh, interesting. Yeah. It, it is. It, it's not not one to be taken too seriously. But moving on from Eve of Destruction, um, Owen, what have you been watching for us this week? I have... Well, just to plug some other stuff we're doing on the site at the moment, we're Currently trying to uh, assemble a few Avengers podcasts. See what I did there? Nice little pun. Oh, yes. Assemble, yeah. Um, basically, uh, in the run-up to Age of Ultron, we're going to be putting together a load of uh, minisodes. Basically, 20, 25-minute long episodes with a retro review, which is a review of each of the individual films leading up to Age of Ultron. I've edited them down from older podcasts. Plus a new review. So we've got a different guest for each of the ten films to come on and talk about. Um, so I think uh, you're actually going to appear on our Iron Man 3 review, Matt. Yeah. Because we spoiled the end of the film for you yeah, when you I would have been, didn't tune out from the spoiler alert. Yeah, I would have been annoyed if anyone got that other than me. So. Yeah, exactly. And I think, Brooke, you're coming on to do Winter Soldier with us because you uh, chose it for your half a decade in film article. I did, you? and I am. Actually, it... Because I wanted to do Captain America for my uh, your, my triple bill this evening as well, and kind of ah uh, well, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad. Okay, I'm, I'm we'll come like, on to that bit later. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it. I've done a little review for the thing, and I'm doing the the pilot now. I'll I won't do Captain America. I'll find something else. <laughs> okay, but and um, yeah, so basically we've got a lot of these um these uh, minisodes that, that we're, we're putting together. So I've basically spent a week rewatching all the Marvel movies I've only seen once. Um, so that I can be up to speed and I've seen them all at least twice so I can at least pretend to know what I'm talking about but in between going to see these Marvel films 
um, or you know seeking them out on Netflix or whatever. I went to the cinema on uh, whenever it was Monday, I think, to see uh, the latest Liam Neeson movie, which is uh, called Run All Night. Now, it's directed by a guy called oh, I always get the guys whose names I can't pronounce. I'm going to give it a go. Uh, Jame Colette Serra. He's Spanish, so it might be Hame or it might be Ham. I can't. I don't know. Whatever Ham. it is. Ham. Yeah, J-A-U-M-E. I'm sorry to any Spanish people. I just... That, yeah, Juan. Juan. There we go. You're making it worse, but... I'm making it worse. I'll stop thinking. Him, Mr. Colette Serra. He um, is Spanish, as I say, but he... No, he directed a few films that I really didn't like. So he directed a film called House of Wax with Paris Hilton in it. Oh, fucking hell. So first of all, that's a remake of a film with Vincent Price in it, so... Massive thumbs down for that. But, uh, yeah, it was a terrible film. I really didn't like that. But, to be fair, that was sort of one of his first features. He also did Goal 2, which, if you remember, is the film where it's set in Spain because he goes to Real Madrid. So, the Spanish connection there, of course. Um, We also did Orphan, which was an okay film. That was all right. Um, But he has got previous history of working with Liam Neeson because Run All Night's... um, as I said, Neeson's latest film. They worked together on Unknown in 2011, which I thought was all right. I quite enjoyed that as a as a decent little um, thriller. And Non-Stop from last year, which I, I thought that was quite good. I actually enjoyed that one in the cinema as a sort of 90-minute thriller set on a plane with a cop and, you know, whatever. It's fine. It was fine. It was fine. This is Juan's third Taken film then. It's it, <laughs> if you like, yeah. Um, I was going to say, it, it seems that Liam Neeson just repeatedly playing the same character from Taken in all of his films just lately. I don't necessarily think so. So, like, we've got, we talked about Jason Statham, um, who does play a lot of these generic roles uh, quite frequently. And, you know, Neeson's no different. He does play generic roles and... He's making a living at the moment as an action star in between some of the comedy films he's been in. Like, he was in Lego Movie, and he was in Million Ways to Die in the West, and all those kind of things. So in between those, he, he just he, he seems to um, earn his bread and butter from, for playing action thrillers. But there are slight variations. So, like, in Taken, he's obviously um, a highly skilled ex-CIA operative, or whatever, whatever his actual history was, and... Then he goes and searches for his daughter, etc., etc., etc. In this, he's still like a highly skilled guy, but he's the mobster. You know, he was a hitman and now he's a drunk. And if it, if it's like any of his previous roles, it's less like Taken and more like um, A Walk Among the Tombstones. If you watched that recently, I've uh, seen that one. Yeah, so that was that was decent enough thriller, you know. Um, but this film is actually written by. It's not written by the director. It's written by um, Brad Inglesby, who wrote the script for, um, or wrote the story for, Eight of the Furnace, with Christian Bale and Woody Harrelson, which I thought was really good. Yeah, it was I very know good. that got a bit I really, I really enjoyed that. He, he's also the guy who's responsible for writing the... the you're, you're like this. He's writing the Raid remake. You know. Yeah, I don't want to... that bombshell out there if you weren't aware of it. <laughs> Yeah. There's nothing so sacred. <laughs> exactly. So moving on, I don't want to dwell on that. 
Um, this film, as I say, stars Liam Neeson. He's playing Jimmy Conlon, or Conlon, I don't know how you pronounce his name either, who's um, an Irish guy. He's also a drunk ex-hitman for the mob, who is close friend of Ed Harris, who's now running his own business empire. And uh, Ed Harris's son, Danny, played by a guy called Boyd Holbrook, uh, who was in Gone Girl, and he was also in A Walk Among the Tombstones. Um, but yeah, basically, this Danny is a bit peeved when his dad vetoes a deal that's worth millions of dollars for smuggling heroin. And his dad's against it. Ed Harris says no. So Danny gets a bit upset about this. Then after a fracas with the drug dealer uh, involved in this, uh, in which Danny shoots him dead, shoots this, this drug dealer dead, um, it's witnessed by Liam Neeson's son, Mike, who's about 30-something years old. And Mike is played by Joel Kinnaman. And then um, it's sort of, you understand the relationship between Liam Neeson and his son uh, because they haven't seen each other for about five years. Basically, uh, Mike found out what his dad was doing, what he was like, all the people his dad had killed. Um, and so he decides to go straight and he's driving a limo. And he is the guy who's driving the limo for the drug dealers. So he witnesses the murder and then... Danny, which is, again, just to clarify, Ed Harris's son, then attempts to kill Mike, but Liam Neeson steps in at the last minute, kills Danny, and thus begins a manhunt from Ed Harris's crew to go out and kill kill Danny and kill Liam Neeson. Um, the police are also there. They're also trying to track down Mike and, and his dad because they think they're cop killers. Uh, and the cop is uh, Vincent um, Donofario, who plays the detective in charge of, of the hunt. Um, you know, it's, also, it's a very generic role as well. You know, he's talking about generic roles. He, the role he plays is a very generic one. He's the only good cop amongst a bunch of corrupt guys and all the others are on Ed Harris's payroll, but he's straight. Uh, the only person Liam Neeson can trust, etc., etc. We all know the kind of characters this is. Could be Forrest Whitaker in the role. Could be anybody, basically. Um, but I think... He did really well, actually. I was surprised by how, how good he was. And I know you're a fan of his, Matt. Um, Certainly like him from uh, Full Metal Jacket, that's for sure. Exactly, yeah. So he's um, he's very good in it. So, like I say, very surprised. But, yeah, so anyway, the film itself takes place over about 24 hours. And, you know, obviously, because the film's called Run All Night, not Run All Week or Run All Month or whatever it is. It's just all night set over, basically... I think it's about 16 hours, but I'm, I'm, don't quote me on that. Um, it's got quite a, p- a quick pace to it. You know, the film's less than two hours long, but I wouldn't say it drags at all. It didn't zip by. It wasn't a very fast-paced action thriller and it was over before you realised it begun. But, you know, there's plenty of decent enough scenes to make it worth a watch and not feel like a slog. There's some interesting moral dilemmas introduced as well. Just going back to a point we made about Liam Neeson, who plays Taken the taken role in every, in every film he does I don't think he's, he's quite doing that here um, you know it's like I say there are some interesting moral dilemmas not least of those uh, in trying to make you feel some form of sympathy for Liam Neeson's character when you really shouldn't because he is a murderer you know he kills people for the mob and you know he might be a bit of a drunk and a loser now but he's still the guy who's killed innocent people potentially innocent people um, and there's a moment in the film where uh, Joel Kinnaman's character says to, to Liam Neeson's character that he should be suffering behind bars rather than walking free. And Liam Neeson retorts that 
just because he's not behind bars doesn't mean he's suffering. So he's got some sort of awareness about his character, yet at the same time it sort of almost revels in the cold, calculated killing that goes on throughout the film. Like when Liam Neeson walks into a local bar and shoots, you know, he knows everyone there, but he shoots them all dead. And, you know, you see that, that scene in the trailer. And it's played as quite a cool scene. You're meant to be impressed by it. Which is a bit, you know, in juxtaposition with with the fact that he's a, a guy who feels guilty for what he's done, and yeah, it just seems seems a bit weird. So um, you I know, I quite like characters like that though, like murderers, oh, yeah. murderers with a conscience, if you like, or or you know, likable bad guys, anti-hero types. Have you ever seen um, Viggo Mortensen in Eastern Promises? Yeah, it sounds yeah, a little bit similar to him. Whereby everything on paper says you should absolutely despise this character and he's bad, but he's so likable and applies morality in just the right places to make you root for him in the end. He actually ends up turning yeah. out to be one of your favourite characters ever. Yeah, I'm I'm quite I quite like that kind of character. Mm. Yeah, so I mean I do like that. There are moments you can see him because you know I know Liam Neeson gets a bit of stick for doing these sort of films, but at the end of the day he's he is a very good actor. You know, it's undeniable. He's he's been very good in some films, and whether he's playing generic, taken like characters or not, he's he's still got a presence about him and and can turn it on when he when he wants to. So there are moments in this where you see him, you can almost see it in his eyes where he he switches, and it's very cleverly integrated into the into the story. But at the same time, like I say, it it's a bit odd because. You know, he's, he, are you meant to feel bad because he feels bad? Or are you meant to whoop and cheer because he's killing fellow criminals anyway, so it doesn't really matter? Um, yeah, so there, there's some interesting interesting things there going on. Um, and I do like a good Liam Neeson thriller. Uh, we skirted around a conversation about Taken before that you were on here, um, Brooker. Yeah. Um but you know, unknown and non-stop, as I mentioned earlier, I think they're all right. Taken is for me absolutely quality. I love that film. Unknown was all right. It was a bit generic and a bit predictable. Uh, non-stop, I, I enjoyed. I don't like Taken. <laughs> Taken bored the pants off of me. Uh, there's not we, there's we, not many films I've seen of Weenie that I didn't like. If I'm entirely honest, that goes right back to something like Darkman, which was probably the first mm. member I'd seen him in. The only thing in recent years I didn't like him in was probably the Wrath of the Titans series, mm. which mm. Star actually, Wars. But I don't even mind. I liked him in Star Wars, even though I didn't like Star Wars. I thought Qui Gon Jinn was was a good character, very likable. Um, but one of the better ones outside of the first Taken film, which I think is fairly universally liked. I really liked him in The Grey. I thought that was a real, mm. out of nowhere, really interesting movie. And I really liked that. And yeah. it's another string to his bow, because it's, it's difficult to sort of show that side of humanity going into depravity like he does by the end of that film. But he did it really well. He does. And but he's also, he has been in some, well, just a recent example is Taken 3, which is just, just a boppins. I mean, that's, that's a terrible film. And the A-team was just incredibly dull and joyless. Yeah, but that, that um, was the point I was about to make, is that he's done so much top-rate stuff throughout his career. He's almost entitled to have a run now. He's allowed to skate through a bit, isn't he? Yeah, he's mm. allowed to have a run of, of 
thrown it in blockbusters now where he's just going to get paid and he doesn't have to do too much and we'll almost forgive him for it because he's been so good and so many other things yeah within the genre even I think as well he's been pretty good you know he's obviously been in some very fancy Oscar winning films and etc etc but yeah so um, <clears throat> not mentioning Cruel either forgot to mention Cruel he was good in that <laughs> <laughs> as good as the one can be in Crawl um, but you know I'd say this is probably somewhere in between films like it's it's nowhere near as bad as Taken 3 nowhere near as bad as Taken 3 it's nowhere near as good as Taken for me I know like I said we, we don't necessarily need to repeat a conversation about the actual merits of, of Taken but it's probably alongside a walk among the tombstones from last year, or probably alongside something like Unknown. It's 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 good enough. Is is the crux of the argument here? It's a diamond dozen Neeson thriller, but it's nicely shot. Um, there's some cam- comparatively challenging concepts here. You know whether they're intentionally challenging or not remains to be seen. But yeah, I mean it is what it is. If you don't like Liam Neeson movies, then the film won't be the one this will just will not change your mind about him but if you do like it you'll probably see it anyway and think yeah it's alright okay cool if you like Neon Neeson that's one to go and check out so we're just going to take a very quick break and then we're going to be back with our hand to hand combat triple bill welcome back um, we're going to talk now about our three favourite hand-to-hand combat scenes. So our resident host, Steve Norman, is having a boxing match for charity. Is that right, Owen? He's had it, yeah. Oh, he's had it? Oh, OK. He had it, yeah. How did he yeah. get on? Uh, hang on. Give me two seconds. I will find you his email because it made me laugh. I asked him how he got on, basically. There's, an, there's also another reason, of course, which is the um, been in the news quite recently with... Uh, Old what's his face getting banned from BBC? Oh, Clarkson. Clarkson for <laughs> allegedly swinging, taking a swing at his producer over a cold meal. Twice, but, um, but we'd never do that on cell critics. We're far too professional. No, we wouldn't, of course. That's not why. That's not why James left or anything. Don't worry. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. But uh, yeah, so Steve entered into. Um, boxing charity match you know he spent he worked quite hard to get himself uh uh fit and ready for it and uh so we were debating whether or not to do this triple bill as a boxing triple bill or not and i think we would have limited ourselves quite a bit too much by doing just boxing because what you left raging ball rocky raging ball um, maybe City Lights, the Charlie Chaplin film, perhaps. You know, it, it depends how much you wanted to stretch the definition of a boxing film. Yeah, that's pretty stretched, Charlie Chaplin. That's pre- pretty stretched, isn't it? So we decided instead to just do fist fights, and um, we've had a fight scene triple bill previously. Um, going back to that was that was about two or three years ago now. We had a fight scene triple bill which is more in general terms, um, whereas this is focused on hand-to-hand combat. So we've got a few selections here, and uh, yeah, where where do you want to start off then, Matt? Where, what do you want to do as um, host? Okay, well, I'll go first then, shall I, because I've got a, a bona fide 
non-boxing, that kind of boxing, hand-to-hand combat scene. And it's from my all-time favourite film. Uh, and that's why it's gone in there, more than its impact as a, a particularly impressive fight scene, although it's incredibly important in the overall context of the film. And the scene is from Fight Club. I absolutely adore this movie. Um, and it doesn't matter how many times I watch it, I still love it. And so many times in, I was still finding new things to, to love about Fight Club that I hadn't noticed in previous uh, watches of the film, such as all the various cigarette burns and just trying to pick out where I could have realised as early as possible in the film that I could have clicked that uh, Ed Norton was Tyler Durden in the end. But anyway, I I digress. The, the scene that I'm talking about, there's, there's two particularly good ones in Fight Club. One is the one where by Ed Norton's character the narrator is smashing up Jared Leto's character, I think it's called Angel Face in the film, and absolutely destroys him. Um, to the I knew it. I knew you were going to do that. that. That's not the one I'm picking, though. That's not the that's one I'm right. picking. I'm just saying that, that that's a particularly impressive one. But that that is particularly brutal. And I think when people think about what Fight Club is going to be like without seeing it, they probably imagine it's going to be like that scene. Just very brutal, um, meat-smacking, concrete, absolute gore-fest. Uh, but the film isn't like that at all, but it does give it to you in that particular piece. But the, the scene I'm, fighting, uh, I'm going to talk about is the one from about a third of the way into the film. Um, Tyler Durden is introduced to Ed Norton, for the first time they, uh, after they initially meet on the plane, they go for a drink at a bar after his condo's burned down, and Brad Pitt's character, Tyler Durden, utters the immortal line, I want you to hit me as hard as you can. And then they proceed to have a fight for no particular reason whatsoever other than for the fun of it. As we later find out, spoiler alert, that uh, it's actually Ed Norton just fighting himself and throwing himself around in the car park, and people gather around to see what he's up to and then get involved in his club from there. But it sets the tone for the movie. There's two guys who aren't particularly good at fighting, start having a fight with each other, sort of tear each other up just a little bit, enough to have enjoyed themselves but sort of feel the after effects the next day. And it sets the tone for the movie from that point onwards. And if you've never seen Fight Club, you'd be able to get it so cheap on DVD or Blu-ray now, and it's probably on Netflix and the other various streaming sites as well. It's an absolute must-see. It was probably, from my recollection, the last great film of the 90s that I can remember going into the millennium, so it's one you absolutely have to check out. Um, Andrew, why don't you give us one of your scenes? Well, I'll tell you what, how about I follow up your, your Fight Club one with my Fight Club one? <laughs> okay. Because Fight Club, the same as you, is my all-time 100% favourite film ever. Awesome. It's, I have lost count of the amount of times I've watched that film. I remember going to see it at the cinema when it came out. I, I used to walk to my local cinema on a Sunday afternoon to watch films. Four, maybe five times I saw that film in cinema when it first came out. Wow. I, I adore it. I, it's... It's my sick day film. I'm off work ill. I'm not playing games. I'm watching Fight Club. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Is that, that I, I think I've owned every version of it that's come out. I've owned it twice on Blu-ray. The twice original on, DVD one was nice, but it was in that. Sort oh, of, the little cardboard box one. Yeah, the little. I, I still have that. Yeah, I'm not getting rid of that. 
But I, I actually chose the the fight I chose was the one with Angel Face. Ah, okay. Because a bit like the one uh, Ed Norton and Tyler Durden at the beginning, it's a turning point in the film. It's 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 after the the first proper Project Mayhem thing in the hotel, and Angel Face has become like his uh, Tyler Durden's favorite, and Ed Norton wants to kind of push himself back in. So it's kind of it's kind of a turning point for Ed Norton's character. He's becoming, you know, letting the Tyler Durden out a little bit, I think, and isn't being quite so submissive to just letting Tyler do his thing. He wants to be involved as well. So he takes his shiny new protege and destroys him. Mm. I love the, the narration through that scene where he's talking about you know, wanting to breathe smoke, and then he quotes, "I just wanted to destroy something beautiful." Yeah. Very, very, very cool. It's it's such a such a brutal. It's not very long, and it's not really a fight because it's very, very one sided. But it is such a brutal scene, and they do because I mean I I'm pretty sure the guy's name is Angel Face in the credits. I don't think they actually name him in the film, do they? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's right. Yeah. Uh, but they take this with Jared Leto, and it's Pretty Boy Jared Leto, and yeah. They turn him into what looks like a creature out of original series Star Trek. I, I found it very <laughs> difficult to actually recognise that it was still Jared Leto after that scene because he just looks so deformed. But everything about that scene, every hit, sounds brutal, and the the gurgling and spitting afterwards just makes you want to throw up. Yeah, and, and seeing and, his teeth floating around in his yeah. mouth and oh. Yeah. And considering it's a film about guys beating the shit out of each other at its core, it is the only actual really violent scene in the whole film. Yes. And which, and because it's a, what it's about the two third mark, and it so it's just kind of starting off Act Three, and it kind of it sets the turning point for the, the rest of the film, and it sets the tone for the end of the film, and it is just such a great fight scene. Yeah, I think that's a, a top pick right there. Uh, Erin, will you give us one of yours? Oh, well, yeah. I did just, by the way, manage to find Steve's reply to my email. Oh, when okay. I asked him, how did your boxing match go? His reply was, getting punched in the face fucking hurt a lot. I lost. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, so I thought I'd share that with you. I'm sure Steve won't mind. Was it at least um, a decent charity? It was, uh, he didn't tell me which charity it was. It was just a whole, like, a big group thing. It was going to quite a few different charities. Some Someone was organising the event and he partook and got punched in the face for money. Um, yeah, shame. Poor Steve. He put a lot of effort into that, but never mind. So, can, can we thing. safely assume that he's retired now from, from the boxing? But, yeah. <laughs> one KO, unfortunately, he was the one who got KO'd and, uh, and retired. But, yeah, so I'll move on to my choice um, for the Triple Bill, one of my choices. Uh, the first pick, actually, I'm just thinking about which order to do these in now. The first one, because we've already talked about him, I'm going to put it in there, uh, is from the Luke Besson film The Transporter. It's my first choice. And it's the... Well, mainly because it's the first all-action film I'd seen from Jason Statham. And, you know, it's an okay film, and it was it was moving along quite nicely, and I was quite enjoying it, and it was very slick. But then there's a fight scene in it which completely won me over. 
And <clears throat> it begins on a bus where you've got uh, Jason Statham who's obviously kicking one guy and he's holding a knife to the throat of someone else the other side of him uh, before then lobbing the knife between the legs of someone else who's on the floor. So there's quite a bit of humour there. Oh, okay, this is quite interesting. And then, you know, it, um, <clears throat> there's two guys. They begin circling each other, sizing each other up. And it starts off as quite a slow fight with a bit of grappling, a little bit of punching, you know, a bit of flinching. And then other people rush into the fight with Statham. And then whilst being held, and then he kicks them as well, you know, he, you know, the, what, the, the fight scene that I really want to talk about begins, which is the infamous oil spill scene. So have you two seen The Transporter? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know exactly what I'm yeah, talking about yeah, then. Yeah. So you've got oil that sort of spills all over the floor. Um, now, obviously, it's a very homoerotic scene because Statham <laughs> is topless throughout this entire scene and he is rolling around the floor. It's and... only homoerotic if you want it to be, Owen. Yeah, I'd never well, thought clearly. about it like that, buddy. Yeah, you will see. <laughs> uh, so he's rolling around the floor topless. He's covering himself in oil. He pours an oil drum on top of himself um, and pours it all over the other guys and they're all rolling around the floor. Yeah, it's that's undeniably homoerotic, I'm afraid. Um, so they're all wrestling each other. Just sounds like uh, good tactics to me. <laughs> just good tactics, maybe. Yeah, but uh, it's very inventive, Steve. I think it was quite quite funny, quite humorous. And you know, then you get him ripping the pedals off the bike and putting them on his feet so he can steady himself. So all these guys are slip sliding all over the floor. He starts kicking them all booting them out of the way. He must do about sort of three or four really high kicks in a row, which is pretty impressive. Um, there's just so many spinning heel kicks in that scene. But then, you know, like, this homo- homoerotic undertone reaches overload when he's in the water outside. He jumps out of the building and he's under the water. They throw oil onto the water, onto this river and set it alight. So whilst he's underneath this flaming river, he has to get oxygen from somewhere. Where does he get it from? Well, he sucks it out of the lungs of a dead guy who's next to him. Basically tongues this dead bloke to steal his oxygen. So come on, that is just... If the the topless rolling around in oil wasn't bad enough... Not bad enough, but if it wasn't obvious enough, that would just, like I said, put everything into overdrive. Um, but I just thought that whole scene was what won me over to, to the transport. And that, that was the moment where... That whole scene, I thought... It's just, it's just so fun. It's just so self-aware, and dare I say, it, a little bit mocking of this homoeroticness of of fight scenes in movies. And yeah, I just thought, yeah, I quite like this film, and <clears throat> particularly enjoyed that that clever, fun scene. Yeah, I think it's fair to say Stephen was on top of his game with the transporter and, and Crank. Yeah, they came out around. Yeah, he was quite time, quite prolific over that period of a couple of years, and yeah, yeah, they were Put some they're, quality they're, movies. They were pretty funny. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I'm going to dip back into mine. Uh, I'll cover my other two a bit more briefly. Um, so my second choice is from Dust Till Dawn, and it, it's the whole sort of generic battle between the heroes, which would be the geckos, and then you have Sex Machine and Frost against <laughs> the vampires. Um, <laughs> Total madness, uh, lots of gore, lots of over-the-top action, um, coming at you with lots of 
funny quips from the characters. Uh, you have Sex Machine with his, although it's not strictly hand to hand with him because he uses whips and pool cues and his crotch cannon and various other things. <laughs> and then you have Frost who just likes to rip people's hearts out. Uh, but the whole thing, it's just incredibly funny, satisfying action. And I just like that scene because it is, majoritively speaking, with the exception of Sex Machine, pretty much without guns whatsoever. And mm. yeah, just an iconic scene from one of, one of the best movies of the 90s for me. Uh, really enjoyed I, that one. I absolutely agree. It's one of my favourites from the decade as well. Yeah. I just love Robert Rodriguez. I think he's uh, yeah, very oh, underrated. He was godlike at that point. He was doing stuff like that in Desperado. Yeah, yeah absolutely. De- Desperado sits as one of my top all-time films. Well, where, yeah. do, where do you place Desperado with El Mariachi? Because I can't decide which one I like more. I think I like Desperado more, but not because it's better, but because, well, when did Desperado come out? 96-ish? Yeah. I was 14. I hadn't heard of El Mariachi <laughs> at that point. Right, fair. Yeah, I think we all saw Desperado first. So I, I kind of uh, saw Desperado and then went back and watched El Mariachi, and I love El Mariachi, but because Desperado kind of turned me on to Robert Rodriguez as a director, Desperado sits up top for me. And it was kind of so cool watched... when you watch El Mariachi after Desperado and you realise the original Mariachi is one of the guys he calls, yeah. he calls up with the rocket launcher in his <laughs> in his guitar case, which was a nice a nice touch. Yeah, I watched them both for the first time last year. I'd never ah, seen him before. See, to me, Robert Rodriguez was always uh, from Dust Till Dawn guy. And then, of course, Sin City as well, is what I knew him from. And um, so, yeah, to watching El Mario. Oh, and I, I, yeah, I did used to like Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Um, see, Once Upon a Time in Mexico that. is okay until you've seen Desperado. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> then I watched El, Mar- El Mariachi and then Desperado, and then I rewatched uh, Once Upon a Time in Mexico, and it was just so much worse. But, um, yeah, Desperado and El Mariachi are just fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. So that was my second choice. Now I'm just moving on very briefly to my third one. And now this is a film that's jam-packed full of amazing action, both in terms of gunfights and hand-to-hand stuff, so you probably got a good idea of where I'm going with this. But if there was ever a film that had an action scene that made it worthy of watching just for that scene, this is it now. You can watch the whole film with glee, but this particular scene always gets me pumped up. And we're talking about the mad dog fight scene from The Raid, which is just out of this world amazing. Um, How they managed to effectively choreograph a two versus one fight and still make it seem like a fair fight was (laughs) absolutely incredible. And I watched this when it was... um, on quite recently again on film four and I was having very good interaction on Twitter with people as they were watching it and everyone went to shit when the mad dog scene came out there were so many tweets about it everyone loves this scene so much and it is one of the most impressive fight scenes in recent years if of all time in in action martial arts films but that is the cherry on top of the cake in an all-round excellent action movie. What do you guys yeah. think of that one? I absolutely agree. Right. I think the whole of the, the... Mainly it's to do with the way Gareth Evans um, directed those action sequences, I think. Because you absolutely agree that you know the guy playing Mad Dog is fantastic. I wish I could remember his name. And Eco Aways is obviously... Yayan Rahuan. Rahian. 
well remembered, I assume. Yeah. Off the top of your head, was Off that? the top of my head. Yeah. Wow. And, <laughs> and, uh, and I'm, Eco I'm a Wade, fan. yeah. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, they're both exceptionally talented, but they require someone who knows what they're doing with shooting action but they, to make them look good. they both choreographed it as well. Yeah. They, they've done all the fight choreography across the whole film. Yeah. Uh, both of them, actually, both Raid films. They choreographed all the fighting, and, and Evans just kind of stood there with his camera and knew how to record it. Uh, but Raheem but, is really... He, everything he's ever choreographed, is it's all the same. The dude knows how to make everything look so, so painful. <laughs> yeah. So, they were quite popular choices on Twitter, on Twitter as well. We had a few people um, tweet in and, you know, it was sort of mixed between The Raid and The Raid 2. Yeah, um, that fight was on my list as well. Because it is just, it's one of my all-time favourite fight scenes. Yeah, I would agree. I, I uh, middle of last, August last year, I went down to the, the Prince Charles in London and watched the Raid and Raid 2 back-to-back. Oh, wow. I tell, you, I tell you what, if they ever do it, if they ever do it again, you have to go down and see it, because it's worth watching just for the audience reaction. Everyone stands and cheers. <laughs> it, it is so, so good. The atmosphere was amazing. And actually, it was the first time I saw the Raid 2, because when it came out beginning of last year, I had Little and, and I couldn't leave her to go and watch beat em up yeah. film. So I didn't get a chance to see it at the cinema. And when they'd done the the back-to-back, I got a babysitter and me and the missus went down and it was so, so good. The atmosphere was absolutely electric. And that scene, literally, at the end of it, the entire cinema stood up and cheered. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty cool way to see that one, I must admit. So, uh, Andrew, did we cover all of yours with that one or have you still got another one you want to share? I've still got one more that's a little kind of... It's a little cheeky, and I hope no one else... Well, I'm pretty sure no one else has picked it, because I kind of bounced back and forth between this one and True Romance. Because I I really wanted to do Patricia Arquette and James Gandolfini. and kind of went, it's such a brilliant scene. I love it. But I kind of looked and went, it's not really a fist fight. It's someone getting the shit kicked out of them and getting stabbed with a corkscrew. I'm not sure it counts. So instead, I went with the final scene between Riggs and Joshua at the end of Lethal Weapon 1. God, <laughs> oh, it's been a long time since I've seen oh, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You're going to have to jog my memory on this one. Right, okay, so the end of Lethal Weapon 1, uh, Riggs, obviously played by Mel Gibson, is kind of, he's pushed, he's stopped the, the other police officers from coming anywhere near uh, Mr. Joshua, who is played by... Gary Busey before he turned into a nutter. <laughs> I love Gary Busey. I love Gary Busey, but have you seen anything he's done recently? I, the I dude, know he's, he's the gone. The dude is off his rocker. Yeah. yeah. So, and so instead of kind of just arresting him or killing him or whatever, they have this big kind of ex special forces guy versus ex special forces guy hand to hand fight in the middle of Murtagh's front lawn. In the rain, it's this really like comedically sodden lawn. I've, no lawn has ever gotten this wet in the history of the world. <laughs> not, not since Noah has any. It's supposed to be in ground. LA. Uh, is it LA? Yeah, they're LAPD, aren't they? Yeah. I, don't, I think it's a fire hydrant that's gone off. I don't think it's raining. Oh. I'm pretty sure it's a fire hydrant that's been hit with a police car. Right. But the thing is, what I like about this scene, 
I I love really like the raid or like Fight Club or so I like really well choreographed fighting. What makes Lethal Weapon that scene in Lethal Weapon it's so good is it's really shit choreograph. It <laughs> it's fucking awful and it's filmed. It's only okay. The, I mean Richard Donner did an only okay job of filming it, but the acting in it is so good and the just the rage that comes out of the pair of them makes the scene really believable and it really looks like Mel Gibson wants to hurt Gary Busey in a really real way. <laughs> it is it's not it's not something I'd pick if anyone went, you know, best fight scene ever, it would be, you know, the raid or fight club or possibly true romance. But it, it, given a bit of time to sit and think about it and try and come up with something a bit different, that was absolutely my, my number one pick. Okay, that's pretty cool. It's- off the beaten track one, so you'll get uh, points for originality on that one for sure. Owen, have you got anything left up your sleeve for us on this one? I've, I've got two left. Cool. Um, I, and again, like I say, I'm thinking about the, the order to do this. Here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick this one to start with. Though. Now, mainly, it could have been from any of his films that I chose to see because he's done so many memorable ones. But I went for one that I've seen quite recently, which I was very impressed with. Um, and it's Jackie Chan's fight scene in Project A Part 2. Wow. So there's a, there's a scene in that film. I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail about the plot because it's not necessary, basically. But um, he's being chased by some gangsters. He climbs some scaffolding, as he always does. You know, he's always high up and it looks precarious. Um, but it's it's mainly because the scene is so funny, and it's going to sound really shit when I try and explain it, because that's how funny things work. When you explain something and why it's funny, it seems terrible. But there's there's a scene where he stuffs a load of like chilies in his mouth, just eats a load of chilies really quickly, and then spits the chilies all over his hands, and starts poking these gangsters in the eyes. It seems really crap, but it's so it's just so daft, and I just thought it was hilarious at the time. And it's the fact that it's it's also still combined with some fantastically well choreographed, well shot, well everything um, fight scenes. You know, it's just it just makes it all the better. And you've got stuff around this where he's lying on a ladder, and. It's the ladder's sort of over a, a, a gap. There's a big drop on the scaffolding. He's lied on top of it, and they quickly pull the ladder from underneath him. And he just reaches out and grabs the ledge in front of him. And it's just like it just doesn't look real, even though it is. And it's, I mean, clearly he, Jackie Chan in his films was inspired by his comedy idols like uh, like Chaplin, as we mentioned, or Buster Keaton, or the Marx Brothers and stuff. But he's still the master of action comedy sequences. So all these fight scenes where he's just pummeling guys or people are pummeling him and he swings in between the gaps of a ladder or whether he's, you know, leaping over a bench or scaling walls or whatever it is, he's just, he is just the master at these. And so whether that's in front of or behind the camera as well, because in Jackie Chan's um, film Project, a part two. He directed it, so I wanted to choose something he directed as well um, to show that he could do do everything. Because I think he can. I think particularly around this period, you know, from the 80s through the 90s, he, he there was no one better than him at this sort of thing. 
But I was tempted to include some other scenes, so I'll just quickly mention, I was tempted to include the rooftop fight scene with two Yakuza guys from the film Who Am I? Particularly the moment where they just keep kicking each other in the shin. And it's just a repeated kicking in the shin for what must go on for about 20 seconds. And it just looks incredibly painful. But it's also the, the combination of that humour and stuff as well. But also one I thought... I, well, I kind of left it out a little bit on purpose because I thought maybe Matt is going to choose it, which is his fight with um, the death guy in Police Story 3. Because we were talking about that quite recently, I think, Matt. Yeah, um, I very nearly went for Police Story 2, actually. Um, for Police Story 2? I think I might have mentioned it in the last fight scene pod we did where he has the fight versus several gang members in a children's playground and he's using all the, uh, yeah, the, the yeah. he's using the apparatus as, as weapons and it's just oh in terms, exactly. in terms of a, a very rapid quick uh, constant fight scene that, that's one of my favourites from a technical standpoint but I, I steer clear of that one but I'm glad that you, you picked something up for Jackie Chan because yeah. you could go into just about any of his 80s or early 90s work and pick out anything that would be worthy to get into a list who's done so many good ones. He has, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, it's just, you know, it's just a shame he has to get older, isn't it, really? And that he can't quite do these sort of scenes anymore. But, uh, anyway. So, my final choice then, and anyone who knows me knows this is going to be incredibly predictable, but I went for Bloodsport. Ooh. Yeah. The Jean-Claude Van Damme film, particularly his fight at the end of the film, against Bolo Young. I was going to say, um, it has to be Bolo. It's got to be Bolo, hasn't it? Uh, you know, it's the, the scene is the combination of this rivalry that's been brewing between the two of them and all the stuff that's going on with um, Van Damme's characters, Frank Dux's, uh his brother, and etc., etc. So, the, you know, it's just a big fight at the end. And you've got this fresh-faced young Van Damme who's against this enormous and ferocious... Um, guy and it, it begins with Van Damme leapfrogging the referee to kick Bolo Young in the face it's just incredible and you know the fight itself gets better as as it goes on there's an amazingly high leap uh, from a ground kick actually and then a couple of somersaults and reverse kicks and all the stuff you associate with Van Damme in fighting but it's just clever how they use the momentum of the fight to, to mimic the the path that Van Damme's character has been, been going on. So, like, the, the momentum of the actual combat changes when Bolo Young cheats. You know, he throws some, some salt into Van Damme's eyes and it makes him go temporarily blind. He can't see anything. So he's just throwing these punches randomly um, whilst then being pummeled from every angle by Bolo Young because, um, yeah. And then, of course, you've got this uh, anguished primal scream scream from Van Damme, which allows him to, to clear his mind, refocus, remember his training and where he had the blindfold on earlier on in the film, so obviously later on he's going to be blind, and etc, etc. But, you know, it allows him to, to catch a punch mid-air and then, boom, you know, without spoiling it too much, basically there's a series of high kicks, of course, spinning kicks, yeah, of course, and he wins, of course he does. But it's just, it's just brilliant. I fell in love with that movie when I first saw it. Um, and I, again, we talked about nostalgia a lot on this podcast. There were there was still nostalgia towards Bloodsport. I can still remember being about sort of four or five years old and being at my older cousin's house and seeing the VHS 
on the side, which just said Bloodsport and had a battered and bruised muscled Van Damme on the front. I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. Um, so, yeah. So, obviously, obviously, I had to include Jean-Claude Van Damme film. I couldn't think of any better um, than in the, than his fight in Bloodsport. I, say, I quite like... I, I like that fight a lot. Uh, mm. I also like the one at the climax of Kitboxer as well. Yeah, yeah. Kind of similar it, movies came out rough within about a year of each other, I think. If I remember yeah, they, were, they were his two two sort of um, breakout movies. Yeah. Breakout movies, yeah. But yeah, because he'd been I, into like Black Eagle and No Treat, No Surrender, and this was the first. These were the first two, I think, where he was. He he just he made it, and it was people started to take him seriously. He did get a little bit unfairly pigeonholed with these type of films, though. You know, the martial arts tournament type films. Um, because he didn't originally set out to become an action film star. It just seemed to be that was what he was good at, and that's all the the roles he ended up getting. Um, but you know, I'm glad he did. I'm glad that's what happened because I, I, as we all know, I'm a massive fan of his. I can't imagine him being much else, to be honest. No, he's such an iconic in the late '80s, early '90s. The run of films he's had was incredible. You don't, you don't see him doing like, Hamlet, then. <laughs> <laughs> he does a really good monologue in a film that's called JCVD oh, you love which that, was from 2009 if you get to see that you get to really see he can he can turn it on he can act as well if he needs to um, but yeah I don't know if this is kind of like now whether I'm supposed to say this or not I don't know why I wouldn't be able to I guess it's my podcast so I'm just going to do it we are inducting Jean-Claude Van Damme into our corridor of praise no in a few weeks so that's one I've been waiting to do for ages because we haven't inducted anyone since we did Paul Verhoeven and that was probably a year and a bit ago so it's a long time since we did that one yeah. a long time ago so Van Damme is the next inductee and that'll be out sometime in April so we've got got that one to look forward to excellent yeah very much look forward to hearing more about the career of the great JCVD so that wraps up our triple bill for this week. Um, can you give us a few shout outs from Twitter, Owen, for suggestions that we had for the fight scenes? Yeah, I can, because we had quite a, 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 a number of responses to this one, actually. It was um, quite, quite surprised. We had a couple of people, so we had at refresh, but spelt R3fresh, um, who said Way of the Dragon. We also had another um, person nominate Way of the Dragon later on as well with, um, you know, the fight scene between Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris because, obviously, it's just an absolutely class scene. Does that make Bruce Lee the only guy who survived the Chuck Norris fight? (laughs) Yeah. Well, he's dead now, of course, but he did survive the fight at the time. Uh, Or did he? Or did he? Well, did he? We'll never know. We we didn't know he did. But anyway, so we also had um, Paul, who's been on the podcast and will be on our 150th episode with both of you guys and Steve returning as well. God help he... us. God help all of us. <laughs> all of us doing a triple, triple bill. We're going to be here forever. It's going to be a beefy one. It's going to be a beefy one. But he um, he said the ultimate face pummeling, irreversible. Oh, which I've fucking not seen. hell. So oh, say, it's, it's not the the rape scene, is it? I mean, he said face pummeling, so 
Have I got the right film? film? Is just, oh, yeah, you have got the right film. The whole film is just horrible. <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't watch it. Be glad that you haven't seen it and move on. Okay. <laughs> we had uh, Rick Burin, uh, one of my friends, Rick Burin, at Rick Burin. He said, uh, Sonny versus Carlo in The Godfather is good. That's a good <laughs> so I saw that tweet and I was like, is this guy serious? Yeah, I don't think so. I, I love The Godfather, <laughs> but that is one of the, the daftest fight scenes ever where yeah. he's just like dragging him into the fire hydrant and slapping him <laughs> with his shoes and then he's bleeding like spaghetti sauce and oh, there. Yeah, exactly. One of the best, one of the best responses we had was from uh, James Luxford at JL Film, who said they live without a doubt. And I had to remind myself of that fight scene. I looked it up, and as soon as soon as I saw it, it's the fight in the alley between Roddy Piper and Keith David, where he's trying to get him to put the glasses on. It's, what an absolutely quality fight scene that is! It's such a cool fight. It's, it's just, just such a cool fight. I, I love that scene. The, the rest of the film I don't particularly I don't care about, but that scene is brilliant. I watched that for the first time that that scene uh, in in response to that tweet, and I was I was giggling. I must it goes on for about five minutes. There's hardly any dialogue in it. The beauty of it is it's it's so rowdy Roddy Piper pro wrestler, and they haven't yeah. even tried to disguise the fact that he's not a wrestler. Uh, and, and Keith David does a, a tremendous job in there as well. Just he can just stop the fire anytime. He just puts the damn shades on, but he won't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Keith David is—I love that guy. I just absolutely love Keith David. Um, but we had some more responses as well. We had uh, at Upper Tier Steve who said, "Cool hand Luke." Um, boxing scene in that. Uh, we had some more responses. We had Liam at Elmore LTM who's. Went for the site a few times actually. He's been involved in our half decade in film um, series that me and me and uh, Brooker were were working on. He said when we were kings with a question mark. Now I think that's the documentary about Muhammad that, Ali. That's say that's the Ali documentary, isn't it? Yeah. So there's bound to be good fight scenes in that, of course. But uh, I don't know. I'll let that one slide though. We'll let that one in. Um, at Murphy S. Bordon. Uh, Christopher Murphy, uh, he picked Indiana Jones, which... Oh, no, the sound effects. The sound effects, Just the awful, yeah. awful punching noises. <laughs> yeah, but Raiders of the Last Ark has got a few good, memorable scenes in that. Um, we did have a couple of others. We had uh, another shout-out for They Live from Thomas Simpson at Simi41. Um, which you know seems to be quite popular. We had Martin Cross at NBC UK, the raids for sure. There we go, there's another one there for the raid. And um, we had, we also had, looks like we had quite a huge response. People were really into it. We had uh, Elab e- at Elab49 from Russia we Lo- with Love, the train, Cool Hand Luke again, and Bad Day at Black Rock, Gross Point Blank. So there's quite a few coming through there. Gross Point Blank? Really? Apparently so, yeah. Uh, yeah, the one with the, the hitman in the corridor of the school. Uh, possibly, have yeah. You, have I you mean, seen I've Gross Point Blank? It's been a long time since I've seen it. it oh, I love it. I really, <laughs> I really like Gross Point Blank. Yeah, the one with the hit... I can never remember the guy's name. Uh, uh, but the other hitman in the corridors of the school. Yeah, it's actually a really good fight for what is a dodgy black comedy. <laughs> and we had just one final one that I'll just, just pull out there because... Um, 
it's always good to, to remind ourselves of this film. We had uh, Alan Passingham at Sir Claymanfoot who recommended the bar fight from Ong Bak. Oh, yes. Oh, oh yes, it is. There's quite a few yeah. in Ong Bak you could pun for, to be honest. But, yeah, that, yeah, that is a good one. Well, I always remember the scene where he sets his own legs on fire and boots someone in the face. That's just... <laughs> That is on back all over for me. The thing with it is like it's like trying to find a you know trying to pick your favourite Jackie Chan or your favourite Jet Li or your favourite mm. Tony Jaa. It's all the same, isn't it? You don't know. You can't pick one fight. You, you just yeah. can't. You just have to say all the fights with Jet Li in. Just all. All of them. them. All of yeah. them with Jet Li. Actually, Absolutely. one of my favourite Jet Li fights is weird. It's in a really really shit film. It's in uh, Forbidden Kingdom. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Him yeah. and Jackie Chan. Finally, together, and yeah. Literally, I, went, I remember going to the cinema, I knew it was going to be a crap film, but I wanted to see it because those two were in it. I fucking cheered. In the middle of Cineworld in Middle King, <laughs> I cheered like a twat when they were fighting. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a momentous occasion. It really it's was. It's a shame they had to include that crappy American kid going back in time bollocks. But um... Actually, he's in Wildcard as well, and he's, he's shit in that too. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so it looks like we had quite a few responses on um, on Twitter. People really got into that. I think people, everyone's got their favourite fight scenes, haven't they? The scenes you could just instantly recall, and they might not necessarily be the best, most well choreographed fight scenes, or you know, the most brutal scenes. But they're ones that everyone's got a favourite. So um, yeah, I quite enjoyed doing this triple bill, and it seems everyone else has quite enjoyed. Chipping in. One film that nobody mentioned, one fight scene that nobody mentioned was a series of fight scenes, but I think it's worth us just dropping in there. Uh, a couple, actually. I want to mention Old Boy, because that's got a side-scrolling hammer scene. The, which, uh, the single-take hammer scene. Yeah, yeah which is scene. immense. Um, and, of course, uh, I'm going to point this towards your direction, Brooker. Uh, <laughs> Winter Soldier. Yeah, yeah, the the fight in, in Winter Soldier again, like I say, any well choreographed fight in that you know is worth watching, and the fight in in Winter Soldier just every hit hurts. It's so yeah. well filmed and so well choreographed, and like I said in the the little the half decade a film review that I wrote for it, the the first scene, the one on the boat with uh, UFC fighter George Saint Pierre, is just you know that George St. Pierre had something to do with the choreography for that fight because it just <laughs> looked amazing. And it did look like every time someone got hit, it was going to hurt. Yeah. And it was, you don't expect that kind of, it sounds stupid to say, but like bone-crunching fights. You don't expect that out of a Marvel film. And, unless Hulk's hitting someone, of course. <laughs> well, one, one of my picks for fight scenes, our fav- not you know necessarily fist fights, one of our favourite fight scenes I chose on the podcast way back when was um, Hulk and Loki in Avengers. <laughs> I don't know if that counts as a fist fight in this situation. I'm but, not sure uh, it really counts as a fight at all, yeah, really, does that it? Doesn't, that <laughs> doesn't count like a fight like the true romance scene doesn't count like a fight, although it was very cool. Yeah. So there we go. I think that's about uh, an end to our, um, <laughs> our triple bill. Yeah, it's nice to get such a good response from Twitter and glad you could all get involved with us for that one. We're going to take a very short break and then we'll be back with our recommendations for your next week of film viewing. All right, should we go straight back into this one? Yeah. Uh, yeah, everyone got a recommendation? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay, welcome back. 
before we conclude this week's podcast, we're just going to leave you with our recommended view for your next seven days. Owen, why don't you get us started off with what you think people should be watching? Well, um, basically, this week, there was quite a, a new development. Well, it might have been last week, actually. The Horror Channel has now been made available on Freeview. So, Ooh. yeah, I, I mean, I like that channel. Anyway. I've got Sky, so I, I watch the Horror Channel quite a lot. They, they show some really good films on there. So I wrote an article at the start of the week just picking out a few films that were on um, over the course of the week. But the one that I want to recommend is on Sunday um, at quarter to 11 in the evening, The Vault of Horror, which is a classic British anthology horror from the 70s with Terry Thomas and Tom Baker in it. And um, it's just, you know, as you get with all, with all these sort of films, some of the, the stories aren't good, some of them are fantastic. The scene with Tom, the, the, just the actual segment with Tom Baker in it, uh, it called Drawn and Quartered is just it's fantastic brilliant so uh, yeah The Vault of Horror you have definitely got to check that out if you're a fan of old school British horror films good stuff Horror Channel is always a good one to, to plug for when you're short of things to watch late at night there's always something on there worth watching yeah or during the day there's always The Hulk or Wonder Woman or Star Trek or the Highlander TV series or Twin Peaks or Tons of different things that are these sort of cult shows that they repeat every so often. I admit, I kind of forgot about the Horror Channel until you put your uh, your article up about it. In, instantly, actually, as soon as I read it, oh, Existence is on. I haven't seen that for a long time. Oh, yeah. Now it's on my yeah. skybox waiting for me to watch it again. I'm, I'm, I'm actually really excited. It's one of my favourite Cronenberg films. It's, yeah, probably my favourite Cronenberg, I think. I, I think it's a really, really intelligent film. Cool. Okay, maybe that's uh, a triple bill for for another day. Get some favourite horror stuff in there. Um, I'm going to go for the new Blu-ray um, in the last couple of weeks. Um, Interstellar has been released, and it was one of my favourite films of last year, although I don't think it quite made it into my top five. I think if you've got a decent home cinema setup and a very good TV, it's going to be a joy to watch if you haven't seen it yet. If you're on a sort of budget home cinema system, perhaps you're going to lose some of the better aspects of the film because it is a, a marvel to behold from an aesthetic and audio-rich point of view. Um, so definitely worth checking out if you're on the cutting edge at home. Uh, Mr. Brooker, what do you have for us? Uh, I kind of, I w- again, I bounced between a couple, but I went with this one because it kind of covers two of my, my favourite hobbies and it's really the only good film that's based on a video <laughs> game like ever uh, film Mortal four. Kombat is it? no it really oh, is no. not Street Fighter <laughs> no <laughs> okay no, no no Street Fighter no Mortal Kombat no no, no nothing like that <laughs> My, actually I don't know how other people think about this I, the only people I ever talk to about this are other people that play games and they really like it so 9 o'clock on Sunday night on film 4 is Hitman and I really, oh. I really recommend it. It's a really, if, even if you don't know the games, you don't know the story. It's a really, it's a decent, fun action film. But it's actually, I think, it's the only decent film based on a video game ever. Oh, I don't know about that. Go on. <laughs> I, I can't think of one off the top of there. There must be. There must be. There there, must there, be. I, I can't think of any. There are none. Like oh, X versus Sever and Super Mario Bros. They're all shits. Oh, Mario Bros. Yeah. Is, 
one of the worst songs ever. The worst when you get computer games based on movies based on computer games, like the Street Fighter, the movie game. Oh, dear Lord, that was awful. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have to think about that one, and I'll, I'll, I'll put it out on Twitter when I think of a good uh, video I, game turn into a, to a film. There must be a good one, there must be. There is, it's Hitman. Uh, I've never, I never played or, or watched Hitman, so I might take you up on that one. The, the thing with, like I said, the thing with the Hitman movies, you don't have to know the story to watch the film. It's at, on its own. It's a half decent action film. Uh, if Timothy Oliphant plays Hitman, and I'd, I'd watch Timothy Oliphant in anything. Uh, and Peter Stormari is one of the bad guys, who I think is awesome. So absolutely, watch, you know, give Hitman a butchers. But I do think I think it's the only good video game based movie, and I think I've watched most of them. <laughs> okay cool so that gives you some uh, recommendations if you're short of viewing for the next few days uh, we should be back in our normal slot next week with Steve returning as host just want to thank everyone who contributed to the Twitter for our triple bill and have contributed or visited the website in the last seven days you can catch us at www.failcritics.com or on Twitter at failcritics. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.